Um, do you know, as a church leader, one of the most exciting things you get is to look around the room and see a load of new faces here. So can I just welcome you here? It's, uh, it's our heart here that you, uh, you feel welcome whether you're just popping in you know, just for a day, you're visiting friends, or whether you're, you know, you're looking around and, and you're thinking that this might be your next home. We just want to extend a, a huge welcome to you this morning. Shall I, shall I just pray? And we'll get into the word. Lord, we love to be in a place where your presence is, Lord, and we thank you so much, so much that your presence has been with us this morning, Father. We, we know that nothing else compares to you, Father God, uh, or to it when we're in a place where your presence is, Father God. So, Spirit, we just pray, come and be with us for the rest of this morning. Come and shape us. Come and lead us. Come and communicate by your word to us, Father God. Ignite your amazing life in us, Lord God. And cause those bits of baggage that we've picked up from this world just to fall away, Father God, so that we can just walk with a light step of, of joy in you. We just pray in Jesus' name. Have your way with us. Amen. So we're back in Corinthians, and if you've not been with us yet, uh, we've been working through the whole of 1 Corinthians, which is a meaty book. And at the moment, you find us in a section where we're uh, in between Corinthians 8 and Corinthians 10. And the issue that... Um, Paul is looking at in this place is, is essentially this issue, how to advance the kingdom in the borderlands. And what we've learned so far, I'll explain that, is that in, when we come into God's kingdom, like any other kingdom, there are spaces in that kingdom that are like the heartlands of that, if you can tell from my little map here, my little risk map. I love a bit of risk, but I had the biggest argument I ever had with my wife over a game of risk. She's, honestly, it was about two years before we got married. I've been married for 11 years, and about twice a year it comes up. Um, I probably, I probably deserve it. Just <laughs> anyway, heartlands. But we also find there are these other spaces, these borderlands, these places. Like heartlands, I guess, would be like this. Now we're amongst our family. We're in the church. Everybody's got the same values. It's not, it's not a place where we're, we're battling with some of the other cultures of the world. But we also we live, don't we? Most of our time in these borderland spaces, places where. No, God's kingdom. We have to interact with the kingdom around us. We have to interact with the world around us, cultures around us, people around us who don't necessarily believe the same thing and actually might be living in ways that are completely contrary to the gospel. I'm going to work out how we live in these spaces, interacting, loving, teaching, you know, how far we take on the culture. They're complex places, aren't they? And they're places that cause argument, we've learned, and debate in the church. And Paul, we've learned, is, is speaking to these issues through a big issue of their day, a borderland issue, we've called it, of their day, which was this. Should I eat meat sacrificed to idols or not? Should I? It's, we've talked about it's not really one that, that troubles our day-to-day here, I don't think. Um, I might be wrong about that. It might speak directly to a situation in your life right now. That's okay as well, hopefully a bit more. But, but what we've got here is we've got one of these issues where for the church it was... It was huge, a huge issue. Should we, should we indulge, should we eat this meat or shouldn't we eat this meat? And in Corinth, the issue was this, that this meat was absolutely everywhere. If you look here, you've got the marketplace in the middle, the agora, the big main meeting place, and around it, you've got all of these temples. And what we've learned from that so far in this, in this bit of the series is that actually pretty much all the meat in the marketplace would have been sacrificed to other gods. That's where it came from. It was offshoots from temple sacrifices. So it was killed in the worship of other gods. And pretty much every social occasion in this town would have revolved around 
you know, sacrificial temple sacrifices, um, different uh, festivals that would have been about all of these things. So if you wanted to do business in this town, if you wanted to have any status in this town, you would have had to have gone to these places. So the complexities were huge. Like, this is where the poor people got their meat from the market. This is the only place they could meet. This is where, if we want to do Christian business with people, we have to go to these, these places. It affected every part of your life. Yet, also, this was a place where people knew they were interacting with things that were bad. These were, this was meat sacrificed to other false gods that in the Old Testament, if you look right the way through the Old Testament to Israel, any Jewish convert couldn't have gone near because he had explicitly said, no, don't go near this, it's bad, it brings you into practices that are bad. I mean, these same religions had been the root of child sacrifice, temple prostitution, things that we know are damaging to humanity that don't communicate God's love. So what do you do? This is a borderland issue. How are you salt and light? How do you make sure in everything you're doing, you're advancing the, the kingdom in this place? This was the issue in Corinth. It spoke to one of these core borderland issues. And what we found out so far is that Paul has completely affirmed your security and our security in the gospel and interacting in these places. He says, look, grace leaves you free. It's an offensive grace that can never be undone. It's a once and for all sacrifice. You cannot, by anything you do, lose your salvation. You are utterly, utterly held and washed in the blood of Christ and by the sacrifice of Christ. Wonderful news, like amazing news. But he says there's some rules of thumb now. And he starts to give us some rules of thumb, some principles to outwork um, that are places where actually, although we're free, although we're secure, it's not actually great to be using that freedom just to do whatever we want to do. And so in chapter 8, he, he posed this question ultimately. He said, look, don't do it if it's going to harm your brother. Don't do it if it's going to harm the growth of Jesus in somebody else. If it's going to cause their conscience to falter, to wave, put love over your freedom. Put love for him. Ensure that you're growing the kingdom in his life over doing just what you want and, exi- ex- uh, and, uh, and just practicing your freedom. So he says that. That's the first principle. You've got to ask yourself in everything you're doing in these borderland issues, is it good for my brother? Is it helpful for the kingdom growth in him? Because you're only advancing the kingdom if you're advancing the kingdom in him. Secondly, what Chris looked at brilliantly week before last, is it good for the gospel? Actually, is what I'm doing edifying the growth of the gospel in somebody else and Jesus' work? Is it building that up in somebody else? Or is it actually causing the gospel to uh, not be as prominent? You know, you've, you've got to shape your life in a way that allows the gospel to be put on display. So you've, in every borderland interaction, cultural interaction, you've got to be asking this question, Am I, is what I'm doing good for the growth of the gospel in, in other people, in people who don't know Christ, in my brother as well? And finally, we come to chapter 10, which is a mystery that I'm going to unfold. So if you want to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, if you've got your Bible, I'm just going to go through it uh, stage by stage. So Paul is continuing this argument of how do we interact with with borderland issues. And the first part of what he says, I'll give you a second. Because unless you're all prepared like Chris C.B. here, he was there, he was ready. That's the leader for you. And the first part of this chapter said this, 
For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptised into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased for they were overthrown in this wilderness. Now these things took place as an example for us. That's his opening gambit in chapter 10. Do you know, in, if I can get my date right, 1812, Napoleon Bonaparte, um, he had his uh, advancing empire, um, he was doing amazingly, taking over Europe, smashing everybody he came into, uh, I think that's what he said as well, I'm smashing everybody, he went into lands of Europe, but then he made a huge strategical error. He tried to take on Russia, and he thought he was going to get there, he thought he was going to get there before winter, so he didn't give any of his troops any of the resources that they needed to survive in a Russian winter. And I believe a Russian winter is pretty cold. I've never been there, but you've got Siberia, you're coming up into the Arctic Circle. But he was so confident that he could take this land, because he'd done it before. His military expertise was the best. They marched off, and by the time winter had come, they were still holding out, and pretty much the entirety of the strength of his army was wiped out. And he had to retreat from Russia, and it was the beginning of the end of the growth of his empire. Fast forward with me. Another empire in 1941 was taking hold. This was the Nazi empire, Hitler. They were, again, kicking Europe. Their strategic uh, military ways were actually beating all the military ways of the world. They were advancing. Hitler then, along with his generals, decided to take Russia. And again... He did exactly the same thing. He thought he was going to take Russia before winter happened. And he didn't. In fact, what the Russians did was, knowing the harshness of their winter, they, they burnt everything in front of them, and they just retreated. And they said, look, if you want this, you just, you just come and get it, mate. You come and get it, mate. And in wintertime, his army, again, was obliterated by cold, by disease, by the long supply lines that they couldn't keep up, by the resource intensity. It was a huge strategical error in kingdom advancement. More of his army was lost, I believe, than in the D-Day landings there. It was, it was one of the key events that broke him. See, what Hitler did wrong here was he did not learn from history, thankfully. And I wonder why this must have been. He must have looked back at Napoleon and thought, that's another age, that's another time, he's not me. He's a, it's, a different, it's a whole different setup there. We, we're new now. We've got military powers. We are the Aryan race. We're superior. There must have been an arrogance over the way he looked. So we're going to do it this time. We're going to do what he couldn't do. They thought they were too far removed from them, so the lessons didn't apply. Here, in this opening passage of chapter 10, Paul is saying, don't be like Hitler, which is a good thing to hear, I think. When thinking about advancing the kingdom of God, do not be like Hitler. He wants us instead to be people who look back in history and to the history of God's people and learn from their mistakes so that his kingdom growth does not suffer from the same mistakes that theirs did. Rather than seeing Israel as something distant past in the, and past. In the opening verses of this chapter, he focuses on two things. Firstly, that they are more like us than not. That they were miraculously saved by God to be a people. 
coming from life, from death, from slavery, to be his special chosen people, a nation to bless other nations. And that whilst in the wilderness, he had spiritually fed them whilst they were in this harsh environment that threw the rock. Do you know the story of the rock? Where they're in the desert, they've got nothing to drink. And so Moses, following God's lead, bashes the rock with his cane and water starts to flow out. This living water starts to flow out. And it is the way they maintain their life in the desert. They have this life-giving water and they just have to keep going back to the rock. And the rock is a picture of Jesus. Do you know, that struck me so much as I was preparing this. When you live in an arid land, actually, Jesus is the rock. He's the flowing water. And it just struck me so much that you literally cannot survive without going to the rock to drink. And how good has it been to come and drink of Jesus today and his spirit? Do you feel refreshed like I do? Like, I feel really excited right now that I'm preaching to you. When I came this morning, I dealt with like a, a six-year-old who is in a proper strop. I've been up late last night. I've had a couple of coffees. They hadn't worked. But actually, when I got into Jesus' presence this morning and I was led there by a wonderful worship band, life started to flow in me again. And I was like, brilliant, thank you, Lord, I'm ready to preach now. Like, I'm not preaching from a place of misery. So I'm sure you want to hear. (laughs) But there's this rock that we've got to keep going from. They are more like us. They have all of the same foundations as us. But secondly, we must look back in history and see this, that God was not pleased with most of them. Despite these similarities, they came to a place where God wasn't pleased with them. As they lived in the hostile environment, something happened in them which had meant that the kingdom didn't advance quite the right way. That, and father, rather than advancing his kingdom, like their king had become displeased with his subjects. So Paul says, and what you need to recognise, this is a lesson for us. It's key that we learn from this. You know, it's so important that we learn from the mistakes of the past, isn't it? It's like, it's like the biggest bit of parental wisdom, yet yeah, the world over and over and over. Like, in, in part of my life, uh, as well as working for the church, I'm a, I'm a probation officer. Do you know, I've worked in criminal justice systems. Do you know the key thing? Like, the key problem with 90% of the lads I work with? They don't learn from their mistakes. They, they just don't learn from them. It kills you. Learn from it this time. Le- oh, really? Really? Man. And God is a patient father with his church. So here we go. God was displeased with them. Let's move on. He starts to put a bit more meat on the bones of this. Now these things took place as an example for us, that we might not desire evil as they do. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality, as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the serpents, nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. How did they get it wrong? How did they incur God's anger? Well, all of these things point back to different points in Israel's history, different stories in Israel's history. Uh, I'm not going to go through all of those. Um, but if we just look at the key mistakes 
he says, there's probably three in here, I think, he, he says, that, that caused them to start desiring to do evil. That they started to desire to do evil. What things started to cause them to desire to do evil? I think first we see idols come in. Their hearts have started to be persuaded to trust the false gods that were worshipped in the nations and cultures around them. Their hearts had been drawn away to follow these systems of belief, these things of praise, these things that say they bring you success, security, power, rather than the one who had secured their salvation. These things were the things that had started to creep in and they'd started to trust them. So we see, we see idolatry seep in. Secondly, we see involved, they became involved in sexual immorality. Their hearts had been tempted into promiscuity by following the sexual practices and thoughts of the world around them. They've been caught by it. Oh, that looks gripping, yeah. Oh, yeah, I'll go, go over there, get involved in that. And finally, there were signs that they had become dissatisfied and untrusting in God, in their situation, in what God had for them as a nation compared to the world around. So we find they put God to the test and they grumbled, they complained. And they, do you remember all the way through Israel's life, they were just complaining, it was better when we were being whipped by those Egyptians. Much better. I remember when I was lugging that big stone. I've gone Yorkshire, haven't I? Now I'll go back to Scottish in a minute. Absolutely, laddie. I was, uh, it was back before William Wallace. No, sorry. Like, we were just... I'm really sorry about that. That was inappropriate. I don't know. It was something. I'm a man of the nations. <laughs> and of bad accents. Um, but anyway, you've got, you've got this sense that they, 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 they kept hungering to be back in slavery. They, as they looked at the nations around, they became discontent with what they had. They didn't trust the God who had done all these things, who was providing the spiritual water from the stone, who was sending manna from heaven. Oh dear. Let's hope that's okay, because otherwise it's going to be a short preach, which you might be grateful for. Here we go. Ah, crack on. Crack on. No crack on. No crack on. Do you know, I think all of these things can be summed up in one way. They were all ways that their hearts, their inner being, their desire, we find it's their desires, isn't it, had been warped and drawn away from the God who saved them. All things that they had encountered in their environment as they walked that had just caught their love of God just to grow cold, they just put a dampener on that and caused them to sort of burn with this desire for something else. Seeing other gods worship, they've been led to worship. Seeing sexual immorality practiced in the world around them freely, they'd been allured and excited by such practices. Compared to their lives in the desert, they had become complaining and mistrusting of God. To the point their hearts did not desire God or what he wanted for their lives, but something else, less, false, that was ultimately evil. After unpacking this a bit, Paul again hammers home that these things are key lessons for us to take hold of today as we live in the world around us as a new covenant people. Now these things happen to them as an example But they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the age has come. Let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, 
and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with a temptation, he will also provide the ways of escape that you may be able to endure it. There's always this security, this promise, that there's always a way out. Therefore, my beloved, he says, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourself what I, what I say. It's these temptations to do evil through idolatry, immolatory, immorality and distrust and dissatisfaction that are key lessons for us now that he wants us to grasp. It's these things, these dangers. Because as we interact with our culture, these very things can seep into our lives just as they did the Israelites. Causing loss of God's life in us. Snakes to get in, battles to be lost. If we let them in, they can be destructive to God's kingdom. So Paul says, don't be arrogant like Hitler, thinking that the past does not apply. See this self-evident truth. There is still sexual immorality. There is still trust in other gods in the world. And temptation to be dissatisfied and grumble in our time with God. So guard your heart from all of these things. Don't let them get a hold of your life because they damage the kingdom in us. They damage it in other people. Because it is common temptation, protect your heart from anything that can draw your heart away from God. That's the point. You know, there's there's usually a point, isn't there, in a preacher that they're like, please, Lord, let this land protect your heart. He goes on. So he turns back to their time now. He brings it forward from Israel to apply what he's teaching to the main borderland issue of their day, this issue of eating food uh, with open sacrifice to idols. And it takes a little bit of explanation, but we'll get there. The cup of blessing that we bless is not a participa- is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we are many, we, we who are many are one body, for we all partake in the one bread. Consider the people of Israel, are they not those who eat the, sac- the sacrifice participate in the altar, eat the sacrifice as participants in the altar? Excuse me. What do I imply, Len? That food offered to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants of demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? In the final passage of this section, Paul essentially says that just like when we go out to eat a meal in a restaurant, behind everything we do in this world, there is a chef. One at work who has prepared the food for us. So, 
wherever you drink from the Christian gospel, whether that be practically, like in an act like communion that we took this morning, we physically broke the bread, we physically drank the wine, we physically did this act of remembrance that God told us to do because Jesus is so important. You do not forget him. Or is whether it's your simple spiritual daily coming to drink from him, the rock, like the Israelites had to, the one who really prepares the meal is Jesus. That is his hands, his labour, his sweat and his blood. When I heard the gospel for the first time, when I heard it, just that simple, that simple thing that Jesus had died for me, He'd taken the cost to wash me completely clean of my sins, to bring me back into a restored life of Jesus, where there were no barriers, where he then poured his grace on me, robed me in a robe of righteousness, put a ring on my finger and said, son, come in, I'm celebrating because you've come home. When I heard that for the first time, those weren't just words, there was a spirit at work behind that, that brought that to life. That empowered it, that changed me, that changed everybody here who professed, professes to know Jesus as their Lord. The Spirit of Christ is the chef of all of that. He's cooking up that meal, that's what makes it so powerful. If you don't know Jesus today and you hear those, don't hear them just as words. I want to say there is a powerful spirit behind those words that changes you forever. He's the chef. And Paul says it's a bit like when the Israelites who ate sacrificial offerings were partaking in the work of the priests who did it. Jesus is like the high priest in that picture of the temple. It was not their own work that prepared that food, but the work of another priest who had prepared their meal. This is how it works. Jesus is there preparing the meal. Then he moves the thinking on a little bit uh, in 1920. He says in the same way, you have to see that even though the food itself offered to idols is nothing, there is a chef behind the food to idols. Its hands labour with that work. And this chef is demonic. Now that doesn't mean it's prepared by uh, a little girl with a spinning head who vomits green pea soup everywhere. It's not what it means. Get that picture out of your head. I've just put it there. Yeah, okay, that's fine. Yeah, all right, sorry. <laughs> For a purpose, to highlight it so that you can then go, all right, that's not right. Apologies for that. Hope you're blessed today. It means that it's prepared by a spiritual being who wants to entice your heart away from the worship of God to a false God. One who, unlike Jesus, is a messenger actively working against God's kingdom. A spiritual being. It's a challenging one with us for Western mindsets, isn't it? A spiritual behind the physical, but the Bible is incredibly clear on this. The world is not just material. If you look at the world and just say, oh, there's just things, you're misunderstanding the world. You're not getting it right. You're not seeing its depths, the realities of it. There is a spiritual behind the material. This is another thing that just grasped me afresh this morning. Why do we pray? Why do we pray? Why do we preach the gospel? It's a bit weird to preach the gospel about a dead guy, isn't it? Like 2,000 years ago on a cross. 
Why? Because there's a spiritual, and that's the spiritual message that God has put his power behind to enact the salvation of the entirety of mankind. That's pretty exciting. And the, it says we've got to grasp that we have spirits, that our spirits are separate from God. If we don't know Jesus, that our spirits need to come back to God and be with God because that's where they were made to be. And Jesus and enemies are spiritually at work in the world as we look to advance the kingdom. So Paul is saying in this passage, what should really matter to the Corinthians is who is preparing the meal and for what purpose. Although eating the food has no bearing on salvation, don't be complacent with it. Know that behind it is a spiritual force trying to entice your heart and your spirit away from following God and what he desires. To worship falseness. To desire evil. This is what the Israelites failed to guard themselves from in history. Bad chefs with bad food that made everyone sick. Do you know, this has so many applications as we look to borderland issues in our, our day. Whether it be that moment on TV, do I watch this show or not? Do I engage with this or not? Do I spend all my time with these people or not? Do you know, I know they're into some bad stuff. Should I handle my money that way or not? Should I gamble or not? It's so important that we lift the lid. We spend a moment to lift the lid, to look inside the kitchen, to ask the question, who's the chef of what we're getting involved with? What spirit is at action here? Is it prepared by Jesus to bring me closer to God, to empower the things that he loves? My marriage, my worship, my trust in him, my community with other believers, my obedience to him? Or is it prepared by one who would entice me away, my heart away? Do I feel that it's, it's pulling my heart away from God? That leads to kingdom breakdown like it did to Israel in the desert. So, so far on our journey. These are the principles he's given us so far in 8 and 9. Is what I'm doing good for my brothers in Christ? Is it good for the growth of the gospel? What's the third principle? I could ask you and then I'll see if I've explained it. What do you think the third principle is? Anyone? Is it good for us? Thanks, Nick. You saved me an embarrassing moment. Paul is asking us to reflect on hearts that went astray in Israel and the mistake of not seeing that there's a spiritual reality and a chef that wants to draw you away from the food that Christ has for you. As he explains these things, he wants us to ask this question. Is it good for my heart? Is it good for my heart? Is it good for us? Is it good for your own heart? Is it something that leads your own heart towards God, to rejoicing in Him? Is it something that He is the author of? Or is it something that is demonic? That can tempt your heart? You feel that pull, like I said, away from God. Desiring to do what is evil is something that leads you to, to want to do something you know clear as day in the Bible. God has said, don't do it. Don't do it. Paul is saying here, if it is affecting your heart or putting your heart for God in danger, don't do it. 
Instead, concern yourself with daily and eating and drinking from the rock, which is Jesus Christ, from the food he has chefed up. So I think these are three principles. Is it good for your brother that Paul brings out in these chapters through this looking at this issue? Is it good for the gospel? Is it good for your heart? Here Paul wraps up and he summarises these three chapters. So we're at the end of another block of Corinthians here. And finally at the end of this, the end of chapter 10, he gives us a picture of how in his mind these three guiding principles are outworked. And he says this, All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbour. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any questions on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the grounds of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered to a sacrifice, then do not eat it. For the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience, I don't mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced of that for which I give thanks? So do, so whatever you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Give no offence to the Jews or the Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do. Not seeking my own advantage, but that many, many may be saved. That's his final say on the matter. What do we see here? Well, first thing we see him basically just go through all the points he's just made. You're secure. All things are lawful. All things are lawful. Once and for all, it was. It's done. You can't escape it. Accept Jesus into your life, you're saved. Secure, it's on him. Hallelujah. I love that. I love that. Um, Worship today, I felt a sense um, that God just wanted to say, listen, listen guys, I, I love you. I'm overjoyed in you. Do you know that the Lord is overjoyed in you? Or do you have this mindset still that you have to be the perfect one? That you have to get everything right and perfect? It's it's a blight for our culture. It really is. And I felt like the Lord wants to speak to some of you who are hard on yourselves today and say, no, 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 listen, I know you're imperfect. It doesn't change that I adore you, that I love you. Like I told you, my kids, they were not perfect coming to church this morning. Remarkably, even with my example. (laughs) Yet, yeah, I adore them. I love them. And it's just a taste. I'm I'm allowed in just to see a glimpse of the way that the Lord sees you. Owen, mate, you know, the Lord, he adores you, mate. Honestly, yeah, I know that. I know that. (laughs) No, I just, I really feel like he just wants to communicate that to you fresh and just say, mate, I love you. I love you. I'm so proud of you, my son. So proud of you. It's so important that it, it, gets, it gets here, that it shapes here. Mm. Oh, guys, I could say that to every one of you. 
Father is so proud of you. I've, I've gone off on a tangent. Let me come back. I'm getting a bit weepy. Ah. Sorry for singling you out there as well. Just uh, where were we? You're secure. The second thing he goes through, he says, but not all things are helpful. Not all things build up. Not all things advance the gospel. Some things offend, so don't do them. These are his key points, aren't they? Do you know, I've just said them in a different way. Like, is it good for your brother? Is it good for the gospel? Is it good for your heart? He just repeats these things. But then he says, look, we apply these with wisdom to a situation. He doesn't give us a black or white rule. Paul isn't about giving us these laws. He says, look, just apply these with, with wisdom, with God in relationship. So he says, actually, look, this is the way I would outwork this. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the grounds of conscience. Look, it's actually a bit removed from the whole sacrifice thing. It's just a, it's just a bit of food that has no bearing in your life. And if you go in and you buy meat for your daily life, his, his response is, yeah, go and, go and eat it. For the earth is the Lord and the fullness thereof. And if you eat it in praise to him, you eat it in praise to him. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you're disposed to go, actually eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. Just go go and eat with them. Go and accept their offering. Go and dine with them. Go and commune with them. Go and relate with them on their terms. Go and be salt and light before them. But, if someone says to you, this is offered as sacrifice, then don't eat it. Look, if it's overtly, them being proudful that this is the meat that has been offered in sacrifice. If it's an overt place, he says, he says, for their sake, don't eat it. If it's in celebration of the false god, don't go near it. Because then all the warnings that you're exposing yourself to having your heart pulled astray, you're potentially causing others to stumble, and you're not encouraging others that Jesus' sacrifice alone is the one that has power. Matters. Then you're not advancing the kingdom. Do you see it? Like, different context. He says, apply this wisdom. Apply it. Apply these rules as you go about life. So I was just wondering, like, what if he said, what, what if it's, oh, that's one on. What, what about alcohol? You know, just a, an idea where some of these things can crop, crop up. What would Paul say to that? I, I wonder if he'd probably say something a bit like this, actually. Um, this is just my outwork and this is not biblical. Just, uh, if it's in the home and not tempting you in any way, you're okay. You've got a clear conscience. If you're invited to a friend and they offer you a drink and they don't have a drink problem, do you know, drink with your meal. No, no problem. Go there. But if it's a celebration of alcohol and drunkenness, likely to lead your heart astray, encourage yourself or others into any kind of debauchery, don't go near it. Apply wisdom. Don't go near it. This doesn't advance the kingdom. That makes sense. Just a little outworking. Then his big finale is this. Summary of everything he said, coins it beautifully. I've spent like 30-odd minutes chatting to you. He just nails it all in a line. Thanks, Paul. Uh, Lucky he does it at the end, so I still get to chat to you. In every engagement with culture, in everything you do, seek to do it for the glory, to shine bright with the glory of God. Do absolutely everything so that God would be glorified in other believers, 
to non-believers and in your own heart. Sums it up, doesn't it? You don't need three points, you need one point. (laughs) So that his goodness, his riches, his majesty, his wonder, his spirit that we've tasted this morning, his good news would be placed on display and praised. (coughs) Sounds simple. Is this your daily principle? Do you put first the glory of God? Growing in yourself, in others and unbelievers. Do you ask these questions as you go about your life and seek to apply this wisdom? Listen, just in finishing, it's so important. We're put here to shine before men. (laughs) Becky's like, what is going on with that picture? Just, uh, hopefully it'll make sense. There's a crowd and a guy in the middle. It's it's a, you know, uh, artistic interpretation of what I'm about to say. So I think. What Israel has shown us is how we interact in the borderlands, the way we live our lives out before others outside of the church is massive. One of the most important ways that they see the difference between those who live for Christ and those who don't. It's so important that we grasp the wisdom that Paul is trying to sow into us here. That we seek to lay it as a foundation of our daily lives and walk. It's good stuff. It's, sometimes Paul is hard, uh, hard nut to crack, isn't he? You've got you to really, really crack it. I hope, I hope we've, we've cracked it as we've gone through this bit for you.